We do try to respect time. Um, I've become timeless in my old age. Uh, some would say you've always been timeless. No, back then I knew it was long and I didn't care if you liked it or not. Uh, now I don't realize it's long and still don't care whether you like it. No, I'm kidding, just play it. Uh, we're starting a new series today that I'm, I'm excited about. Uh, we have made it our custom here to try to do a series on the gospel, specifically on Jesus every year, once a year, uh, something to kind of keep bringing us back, to see things through the eyes of Jesus. And um, so we're starting a series called Seeing Jesus. Garrett wrote a or put together a series of eight uh, discussion studies by this title, and we're going to be preaching from uh, those titles. The first Two, though, are introductory. I'm going to share today, and Garrett's going to be sharing next week, and then um, all of us will be preaching through these eight um, lessons of seeing Jesus through these things. But today, I'm going to be talking about uh, the heart behind one-on-one ministry. And the reason that I'm talking about it is because this Seeing Jesus study is just one more of these studies that we've devised to help each of you uh, be able to study one-on-one with someone else, be it a peer discussion or something you can use to continue to discipling somebody that you mentor um, or, or helping someone. Maybe this is the, the study that you might choose to help someone that you're trying to help come to know Jesus better. Um, and so... The, the, the idea of one-on-one ministry, uh, anyone that knows me that's been here knows how strongly I believe in that. Um, I, was, uh, I was called as an evangelist um, in 1973. I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand calling, uh, but I knew it was very real. And... Um, I've never doubted since the day that that happened that God had called me um, to do something for him, that he would show me. And over the years, he's he's shown me that um, he called me here to coordinate a whole bunch of us um, that kind of believe similarly um, to plant kingdom churches and to partner with campus ministry and help drive that a great open door in our city. As well as to other young adults, we've recently started a ministry, I say recently, it's been the last probably three years, a ministry called Track, which is a, a parallel to focus to start a more concerted effort to reach uh, out to young adults that do not go on the college track uh, but often become very disenfranchised in church because there's not an exact place for them uh, in their mind. Um, and so in, in doing this ministry as an evangelist, I discovered early on that one-on-one is how it's done. Now, just so no one gets overly impressed with my great wisdom, um, I, I, I got this uh, theme off of a bumper sticker and uh, it wasn't even on a car. It was a cheesy little kiosk at an evangelism conference selling Christian trinkets. Um, um, so, you know, they had another thing on there called a round to it. And you'd wear this button and it was 
kind of a takeoff on people uh, and evangelism that they're always going to get around to it. So he gave people around to it so they would start evangelizing. And that really revolutionized the world. But, <laughs> but it really did set me to thinking about a lot of things. Um, and one-on-one, just the importance of face-to-face ministry uh, came to me early and often and is a deep, deep part of our constitution. Now, when I say that, we're not talking about it just has to be me and you. It can be me and three of us or four of us. Enough that any one of us can have a face-to-face relationship with the others in the group. That I know I'm seen. I know I'm known and recognized for who I am and accepted for who I am. One of the things that I got out of uh, secular psychology, and there's some argument about who said it, but it's out of the Freudian psychology movement, uh, was simply the, this underlying uh, idea that I accept myself as I am and I change. I accept others as they are and they change. Now, I believe this is very biblical. Uh, just uh, my, my first degrees in science, chemistry specifically, and I learned in science a lot about the physical laws. It is amazing the physical laws of nature, the natural laws. But what I didn't learn in my secular education were the spiritual laws that are just as fixed and just as real and just as reflective of God. And in this modern world of relativism, we're playing this silly kid game called my truth. Uh, The only truth you have is the lies you're making up if you don't know God. That's your truth. What you think is light is darkness. I'm as convinced of that as I'm convinced we're here in this auditorium today that there are spiritual laws that emanate from God. And just like you can't change one plus one equals two and say, no, I want it to equal two and a half. Uh, You can say that, but you just look as foolish as you are being. It is the idea behind math is, is based on this logic that comes from God. And we could go through all of the many formula that we were made to memorize in our various classes that we hated to memorize, but I believe that one-on-one is a spiritual law, that we all need one-on-one relationships, and Satan has been extremely good at attacking humanity at these grassroots level. When I started going to church, we sang mainly hymns, and a lot of those hymns were ancient hymns, and some of them weren't quite true. Uh, We would say things that somebody during the Depression wrote. Um, One of my favorite songs, um, you know, um, um, let's see, it was... um, I'm having a senior moment. But it would talk about being broke and poor and not having any money and being hungry, which most of us were overweight and overfed and uh, uh, had never been broke in our life. But one of the songs was this song, Near to the Heart of God. It was, again, the song written, I believe, released in 1903. Uh, 
just says there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. O Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before Thee near to the heart of God. There's two more verses to it. But, but there were songs like this that captivated me. Uh, there was another one called Jesus Rose of Sharon, Bloom Within My Heart. Um, that Because the church movement I'd grown up in was impersonal. Um, it was somewhat neo-Catholic in the sense that believing that the, the authority of God comes through the church and you go to church to have a relationship with God. There, there wasn't any sense of a personal relationship with God. And it was reflective of some of what Peter was saying just about we were here to do. Uh, we had one of our favorites that we like to sing called Toiling On. Toiling On. And the, the music was just as bad as the words. Very depressing. <laughs> uh, but man, we were toiling on. The points I want to make today about this is, number one, that God is personal. We can be near to God. Number two, that personal relationships are all-powerful in ministry. They are the way God works through us most. And the the last is ministry is personal. It's about shepherding people, not hurting crowds. So let's talk about God as personal. Well, first of all, God can only be as personal to us as we know Him. And Jesus certainly came to reveal Him in humanized form. The, 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 what God did in Jesus is different. Um, I first heard this in uh, C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. He talked about the difference of of making or creating and begetting something. And he says that Jesus is begotten of God. And when, when, when you're begotten of something, you are of that substance. It's something of the same substance. And trying to understand the Trinity and how could Jesus be God and they have two different persons and the Holy Spirit be different is most difficult. But God begat Jesus. He created us. Now, through us, God allows us to beget others. Our children are of us. My and Tana's children, are their whole genetics come from us too. Just like we came. We beget our children. We didn't create them. We begat them. God is continuing to create and He breathes into them the breath of life. But But he points out that the Son of God became man, humanity, so that humanity could become the sons of God. And I thought, yeah. You know, I only reread that recently, and and I remembered how profound it was then. And as a a pastor of 50 years, I, uh, I just realized how profound it still is because he's one of the great Christian thinkers uh, that that you can read. But our humanized, human-reasoned views of God are at least very naive, but probably mostly ignorant and self-centered. 
until we accept our limited nature, we keep our minds closed. But the more you open your mind and your heart to the reality of God and and ask, who are you, God? The same question Paul asked this great religious Jew who was, I like to say, clotheslined by Jesus uh, and, 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 you know, was asked, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And that's the right question. Now, let me say something about faith. I believe saying that there is not a creator or creators is just as foolish as saying nobody built this church building. I believe it's even more ridiculous. It's what I believe as someone educated in science and psychology and business and ministry. I'm telling you, I believe what Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in their heart there is no God. So I am assuming God in this, and I'm assuming that there is a God, but we have to ask, who are you, God? When we are ignorant of God, we're ignorant of everything else. We're in an age of great knowledge. The scientific principle has been applied to every area now. We have humanized it in a way that our scientists are now the priests of secular humanism. Follow the science. That is a ridiculous politicized statement of people that have no idea how science even works. I love science. I still read science. I study science. And I'm because I do, I want to scream at things I read uh, by people. When we're ignorant of God, we're ignorant of everything else because we're made in the image of God. God, God created a creation, a natural creation, which included all of the plants and animals, And then he created humankind and breathed into us the breath of life and we became living souls. We're just animals. We're something more. There's something a lot more quantum about us in what God puts in us because he he gives us something very special through creation. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34, Paul just says this. He said, bad companions corrupt good character. See, again, a spiritual law. Uh, Character is caught. You are going to be like who you hang out with most. One One of my ministry friends used to say to the young people, you are going to go to the same place your friends go, be it heaven or somewhere else. Well, again, that's, a, that's a, an idea, but there's a lot of truth to it. Thoreau said the masses of humanity live lives of quiet desperation and they go to their grave with the song still left in them. 
That's a sad reality because each one of us is a living soul. And in a sense, our, our, our very life is a personal testimony to the God who made us. Paul talks about what happens when people don't know God in Romans 1, in just this whole deterioration as we begin to deny God. You know, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Therefore, God gave them over to shameful lusts. The Sodomites are out in force today just like they were after the fall. People who were living for themselves and for their own appetites, the chief of which is sexual. Now, why would Satan attack cursed humanity at the, the very point of sexuality? It's because God made us collectively in his image, male and female. And when Satan attacks us at that level, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, he destroys our very connection with our God-given identity. We can't even define who, what a woman is anymore or what a man is. One of the most moving things a counselor ever did for me, probably about 30 years ago, uh, I went to a lady who counseled uh, men who had been abused. And I never talked to anybody about it. It wasn't recognized. And in that conversation, we were just talking about what it means to be a man. And she said, Ronnie, I want you to define for me what it means to be a man without using anatomy. I was stumped. I'm still a bit stumped by that. But what I can tell you, it is to project half of God's image. And it is with the whole of humanity to project all of God's image. And with the new humanity, the church of God, to project Him even more, this personality of God. Well, Paul says this curse corrupted us. It corrupted us physically. All of us. I, 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 I kind of tongue-in-cheek tell all our young Young pastors, as they begin to kind of counsel people on sexuality, listen, you need to assume everybody has a kink in their wire somewhere. What, what is perfect sexuality? It's messy. This thing we call sex is messy. It's glamorized and idealized by Hollywood and often in our infantile fantasies, but it's messy. It's messy relationally, it's messy physically, but out of this messiness comes, you know, these little babies. Our, our newest member back there, Paul Wang, I think they're standing up back there. Right? No, is that who that is? Is that Katie? I can't see anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, as ugly as Jesse is, Paul is beautiful. <laughs> Katie's beautiful. Obviously, that's where he got his beauty. That's the way God works. This world is messy. 
And, and, and Jesus warned, you try to do that on your own. You try to do it by your knowledge. You're in trouble. You're going to die. And humanity has died over and over and over because we want to play God in our life and in the lives of people around us. That God is personal, one of the stories that is most captivating to me is the study of Hagar. Hagar was a, the handmaid of Sarah, uh, Abram, Abraham's uh, wife, and God had promised uh, Sarah and Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, uh, that they were going to have a child. Now, she was beyond childbearing years, way beyond childbearing years. And she even laughed about this. And um, which you would, right? I mean, who wouldn't say, what? What? Uh, it's probably what Joseph's friends uh, said when he said, yeah, Mary's pregnant by God. <laughs> what dude out here would believe that? <laughs> and if we didn't laugh in your face, we would laugh behind you. But God does do the unbelievable in circumstances, but they weren't having a baby, so they did what humans that are trying to play God would do. He, she suggested he have sex with her handmaid, and then they would raise that baby. She owned her, so she will own the child. And so he does. And Hagar bears the son Ishmael, and then Sarah is ticked off uh, because it's making her jealous that Hagar got to have the baby. And then she blames Abraham for it. (laughs) Marriage is messy. (laughs) It's messy. And he's saying, well, this was your idea. And I'm sure the fight was on at that point. uh, Nothing was accomplished. (laughs) Um, But Hagar is so mistreated, she runs off. Um, and she's out, and she's downcast, and um, God came to her. In the worst situation, Hagar saw God see her. And, and she named him that God. He came to her, he called on her, and said, you need to go back, I got this. I'll take care of you. Now, he didn't say, you go back and you're going to be esteemed. You're going to be a princess. You're going to be the God of the world. No, she went back as a slave. Reality. In a fallen world, this is reality. And we could spend a lot of time on Hagar. But what she learned is God is personal. The God who sees me. We sang that song that Peter led us in and I think about those dark nights that there were times in my life I didn't think I could breathe. So much was on the line. When I was young, when I was scared to death as a kid, when I was in college, as I moved into ministry and encountered just the, the evil and the harshness of the world, the decisions I've had to make here a few times that I knew were going to be devastating to some people and they would never understand them. But God always came to me. I wrote a poem about it. It's the last poem in my book on called Glowing Embers. It's out there and it's just called You Come to Me. You come to me. When all around is joyful, when life is glad and good, when comforts all surround me, when life seems as it should, you come to me. 
You come to me in power. You come to me in might. You come to me in quietness. When the world's asleep at night, you lay me in green pastures by quiet waters that you calm. You breathe on me your spirit. You soothe me with your balm. You come to me. You come to me when all around is troubled, when worries flood my mind, when my sad, sad heart is broken, when darkness has me blind, you come to me. You come to me and lead me. Show me a hopeful way. Turn hopeless into hopeful. Save me from life's evil fray. You come to me and hold me. Touch me in my disease. You come to me when all forsake me and relieve my agonies. You come to me. You come to me so I wait for you in trouble. Wait for you in sharp pain. I wait for you when lonely, even when waiting seems in vain. You come to me. Though men may doubt your presence, you stand right by my side. I've come to know your essence, for in you only I abide. Others may not see you or feel your hands of relief. I see you come so clearly. Relieve my shame and grief. You come to me. You come to me, although your ways are not our ways. Your answer's not what I expected. How you come no longer matters to me. With you, I am never rejected. Just please come to me. As I ponder your miraculous birth with Mary, Joseph, and the sheep, the shepherds, and the magi, in the cold, dark night you sleep, when Herod slaughtered infants, tried in vain to stop your showing, the child of God, no force could stop. Now daily in me, your presence showing, you came to me. The God who sees you. I know there's a lot of you today that still don't feel important. For some of you, you're you're coming to church and you hope to find a friend, to find someone. Some of you are hurting really bad and some of you aren't. But you, you just wonder, do I matter? And the answer is yes. You do matter. You call out to God and He will come to you. When we personally see God in His perfect light, we finally see ourselves. And when we serve as mirrors of that light to others, as we're supposed to do, we allow others to see themselves and us and thus to be drawn into the perfect light of Christ, the light of which we can only be mirrors and reflections. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us to go into our closets in secret and pray just to God. And then he said, and God who sees you in secret will reward you. It's impossible for us to comprehend the intellect and person of a God that can listen to everyone's prayers at the same time. 
But when we say that, what we fail to realize, he's not listening to them in time because he is not bound up in time. He created it. He's listening to your prayers in eternity because he's omniscient. He will come to you in our context, but he hears you in his. The second point is personal relationships are all powerful in ministry. When I was five, we went to a little church out in the country and there are probably 80 people there. Uh, I was the youngest of eight kids. Uh, there were still seven of us at home at the time. And, um, and you can imagine us packed in going to church. Uh, that was before seatbelts. So I sat back middle floor. That was, I was the youngest and that was my, I was relegated to that. And uh, one day I was just doing what kids do at church, playing around. And I looked and I saw my family car going down the road leaving. I'm looking around for Jack and no Jack. He was usually around and, and I thought they were doing what they often did, playing a joke on me. And I started kind of running out down the road. No, they went to the highway, turned, and left. Left behind. I, I, was, I, I experienced the original story of left behind. <laughs> oh, no, they got home. They didn't remember me. Jack swears he knew I wasn't there, but he knew he would get my piece of chicken at Sunday dinner if I didn't come home. Um, the preacher took me home. They were all surprised to see me walk in. You know, for a kid, you suddenly realize, you know, a lot of things. But I do remember this lost feeling that I felt. Now, lest I appear self-righteous, I would never do that to my child. Tan and I left one of our kids at church. We were having some kind of get-together and there was a bounce house. And Tana was probably worn out trying to chase kids, as all mothers are. And she had two junior, well, three kind of in that junior high uh, age. They, they still act it, but they're older than that now. But uh, she told them they were going home and Casey wanted to stay in the bounce house. And so she said, well, be sure and tell your dad you're here. Well, of course, Casey came and told me not. And so... <laughs> I wrap up, Casey is out there in the bounce house by himself still. Everybody is gone. But me and one other person. But I get in the car and leave because this other person kind of did a little bit of work down here and said he would lock up. Well, I get, you know, 10, 15 minutes away and this person calls and says, Ronnie, your son Casey is here. And what? You know? And so I turn around and head back and call Tana, and she said, well, he is supposed to tell you. And I want to say, sweetheart, don't ever depend on a junior high boy. <laughs> but I get down here and take him home. Now, it was not two months later that I found out the person we had left him with was a pedophile and is now in prison for abusing junior high boys. Now, I had talked to this guy, and he admitted to me the number one object of his attraction was Casey. My parents let that sink in. 
But guys, we live amongst that and a lot worse every day. And God knows it. I hear these stories all the time. I was with someone this week that started coming here and and said what was different about this church is they felt cared about. They felt loved. That they'd never had any friends. And now they know a lot of people. He didn't say one thing about our great sermons, <laughs> our theology, our great music leaders. He said, you guys loved him when he came in. And nobody ever had. I know the whole story. It's tough. I grew up, the last few years was a mentally ill father. Dad was very sick. Mom had died six years earlier. My senior year, I lived alone with him, and I cannot describe the horror of that year. But I survived it. My freshman year went okay. My sophomore year, I moved off campus, and I went into major depression. I didn't understand that at the time. I couldn't have articulated it, but looking back, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if any one of you came and talked to me where I was, I would be extremely worried um, and, and take action. But my junior year, again, I, I would pray, God, if you're there, God. And then I didn't know how to believe in God, didn't know why to believe in God, I didn't have a Bible, I didn't know how to think about all this science and psychology and God over here. It just seemed a million miles apart. And so I said those prayers, and he came to me. He came to me through Francis Briscoe. That was Jack's mother-in-law-to-be. Maybe she, she already was his mother-in-law. Inviting me out to her house for Sunday dinner. I hadn't had Sunday dinner with a woman cooking a real meal in a long time. I cooked it myself if I had it. And it wasn't near the same. Even if it tasted as good, nothing tastes as good as a meal made by a really sweet woman of God. You know, he came to me. I, I started going to church. I, I just decided this is the only way I can find God. And, and one day a guy named Ken Hollingsworth came and invited me to the Church of Christ Student Bible Center. I'd gone once with a girl. I've told you that before. That's the only reason I went. Didn't like it. But I just thought, I'm going to go. And I did. And God came to me through a bunch of kids that I previously thought I was better than. They weren't athletes. The girls weren't cute like I would think about cute girls. I was a sick young man, shaped by the world. But he came to me, and what I learned changed me forever. Now, I have no doubt that my narrative of my life, as I try to recall it, is self-centered, it's, it's from my perspective, it's perhaps exaggerated or maybe minimized in some places. Maybe it's fabricated in some places. Studies of memory show that we're just not real accurate. 
And, and maybe it's otherwise partly or mostly inaccurate. Hopefully, I get the general situations and themes right, but I try. But I remember that moment. I remember that time. I remember for the first time feeling like I had real friends. I don't have any real friends from before I became a Christian as a young adult. But I have tons of them since. And they come to me. See, God knows our reality. He knows my reality. He knows the truth about what's happened to me. And He knows the truth about what I've done with it. And He knows the truth about where I'm half right and where I'm completely wrong. I wrote a book called Seeing God, Seeing You, and that really is me trying to express my Hagar deal, seeing God see me. Me, not the youngest of eight kids, not the one left behind, not the one trying to figure life out, not the one that had been hurt by a lot of people. He saw me, and he came to me. He came to me through people, and those people taught me to seek God within me. They showed me what God looked like. They showed me what, who God sounded like. They showed me the way God acted. And God still comes to me through people, but He's come to me other ways as well. We can have a personal relationship with God. And through that, in ministry, we can have personal relationships with others. Guys, the people that need help are not going to be most helped in our sermons. What we are trying to do in our sermons is to pique your interest enough so you go out and spend your week doing these things. I cannot compete in preaching with what you can do as the youngest Christian, as the, as the, as the person that knows nothing. I can't compete with what you can do one-on-one -on -one because you can do something I can't do. You can love that person. We love because He first loved us. And that's the essence of God, and He wants that to be the essence of us. Amen? Amen? And as the Spirit changes us, that becomes our essence. Jesus didn't say they'll know your disciples by your perfect view of the Trinity, your perfect view of predestination or premillennialism or premarital sex or gender orientation. He said they'll know you're my disciples by your love for each other. Because that's the first impact God's going to have on you. Brandon and I were talking this week about someone that, that's visited this church. And just the struggle people have in, in seeing people. And, and I can tell you we do have trouble in seeing how God sees people. And I told somebody this week in talking about some of the problems that we're having and particularly the, the challenge we're having with same-sex marriage and the whole trans movement and all of that that is a tsunami. But I told this person, I'll tell you how our young people are going to think about this. They're going to try real hard to think about how would Jesus see them, and that's how they're going to try to act. And I have that confidence in all of our young people. That's what we're going to do. 
Lastly, ministry is personal. It's not about it's not about herding, it's about shepherding people. Jesus wasn't a herder. He was a shepherd and he was a shepherd of the old order where they they led a, a little flock of sheep and those sheep actually knew their voice. Sheep really don't herd well. And we're sheep and we really don't herd well. We may pack in a place. We may act, but we don't herd well. But when we put ourselves in these personal relationships with bad companionship, we demonstrate that in fact we're ignorant of God. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Listen to the rest of it. 34, come to your senses as you ought. Some of you are ignorant of God. And when you're ignorant of God, you're ignorant of everything. We get to be that good company. Why did God put His Spirit into us and say He would be a river of living life erupting from us? Guys, when you come in the room, God shows up. You get to be God to people, not their God, but you get to take God and just look at them. Sometimes it's flowing when people see you just care. That's why I tell people with people that are hurting and we always want to say some magic words, there aren't any. Just show up. Make the call. Text, call, check, ask. Because often that is the deal. That's the biggest deal. We want to we solve their problem. God wants us to show them His love for them. He wants to come to them through you. And just like God showed up in Jesus, He wants us to show up for Jesus. I love reading Focus's uh, student testimonies of the month. And it's pretty much universal that the thing they're going to talk about is some real people saw them. Friendships. People care about them. Now, we don't get converted merely by friendships. We get taken to the one who can convert us by friendships, though. The teen ministry, I I just smile. I learned about youth workers and mentors in teen ministry 50 years ago. It It was the first formal ministry I worked in, and I knew I wasn't cut out for it, but I studied teen ministry a lot, and Teens don't herd well. And now, you know, as the church has watched our teens leave in droves, and the ones that stay have be heartless with God too often, they're discovering that every kid needs an adult mentor. They need somebody that sees them. Not a peer that they look at and think, well, you're just as stupid as I am, so what... I know I'm dumb and I know you're dumb. They need someone. See, one-on-one is how it's done. And the heart behind one-on-one is no one else but God. He's the God that sees you. He's the God that knows you. He's that fierce mom 
who when everybody else abandons because the, the, the house is burning down, runs back in the flames to get her baby. He's that fierce father who, who would do whatever he can do to protect, to support men wearing themselves out, working two jobs to feed their family. Now, both women and men do those things. I'm not, not trying to be gender specific, but just point out the general thing. That's our God. We're made in His image. We come out of this womb in life. We're personal. Each of our kids were personal and we gave each of them a name. We didn't just say, well, you're ch- children number one and you're children number two. and you're... No, we gave them a name and we know them personally. And, and there's this sense of omnipresence that Tan and I have with our kids. And we'll say, have you heard from so-and-so? Have you, have you talked to so-and-so? Have you, did you hear? Did you? We're always watching our kids. We're always aware of our kids. And if we hadn't seen them for a while, we're going to get one-on-one with them. Because we want to look in their eyes. We want to hear their voice. Because we know. We know a whole lot. Are you really okay? Do you need me to do something? But I promise you, if our kids need us, we will come to them fast. And I've told them that if you need us, you call us. If you need us really bad, you call us really fast. And that's the way it is with God. See, we are force-shaped in as we grow up by this world around us. We're pressed into this world's mode. Go to class, take this class, learn this, do this, speak this, here's the rules, here's the law, here's our family, and we're all being shaped Romans 12, 2 in the Phillips translation says, do not let the world press you into its mold. Now you read it in IV, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. He says, don't let the world press you into its mold. But we're, we're pressed in. We're constrained in the crowds. And when we come to Christ, we, we have this freedom that none of us are trying to make each other something if we're serving Jesus. We're trying to help each other be something. And that's like Jesus. Crowds minimize us. They make us bit players. They obscure us. They hide things from us because we can't see around us. They make us unempowered. Personal relationships with significant people right-size us. They allow us. They allow us to be empowered. They allow us to be enlarged so that we can really see. We can see ourselves as we are and see others as they are. So in conclusion, the most important part of one-on-one outreach, discipling, counseling, and relationships is simply putting a human Christian in contact with another human, be it discipling or be it outreach, so that they can clearly see and be seen. Teenagers don't feel seen today. College students don't feel seen. Old people don't feel seen. We just look past people. A lot lot of the, 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 the minorities, what they're trying to say to us is we don't feel seen.
you keep trying to define us. You keep trying to tell us about our hurt and you don't know how we feel. I read an article just this morning by journalist John Blake. I was blown away by this article and it's really about a book. But the, the title of this book that's coming out this next month is called What a Black Man Discovered When He Met the White Mother He Never Knew. Just the article had me in tears. He had grown up, knew his mother had gone, but he didn't know, he, and he knew she was white, but he was with his black father in an all-black area, and so he said he was a biracial young man in the closet because that was not okay in the world he was in. And one day his dad said, you want to meet your mother? He was 17. His dad knew where she was. Well, he took him. She was in an insane asylum, literally. That was not a good place. And he met his mother. And he describes this transformation. And then he talks about a Yale professor that talked about the the thing that helped most to relieve racism and segregation. And it wasn't teaching. It, it, It wasn't rules. It wasn't laws. It was people being together. You know, what changed me from that little boy that had been taught racism, what really started turning me was a guy named Leon Douglas. It was sitting in a room with a black guy that would tell me about his experience. I'd never talked to a black person before. I'd been around some in high school, and it suddenly, there's humans here. They're just like me. They hurt. They feel. I had an experience too, and he asked me questions about mine, and he was just there for, you know, four months. But then God gave me more people. Danny Malone being the second one who I spent hours with Danny. I got in trouble with Tana more than once over Danny because we would start talking, and I would lose track of time, and I would go home at two and three, having not even called my young wife. I wasn't having an affair, and if I was, it was an affair of godly intimacy with just another person who had a life and had an experience. And I learned. No, that's why diversity is so important. You're not going to break this down until you can hug somebody that doesn't look like you, until you can hear their story and feel their pain and not try to impose on them and force them into some mold that they don't fit in and don't want to fit in. That's the problem with a lot of our mission work. We go, we try to force people to look like white Americans. They don't want to be white Americans. They want to know Jesus, and they want to let Jesus shine through their context in their life. Jesus changed people one-on-one. He changed the apostles one-on-one. He called them. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He changed the woman at the well by a conversation. He saw this Samaritan woman and she was just blown away that he saw her and he talked to her. It's amazing what you can do just sometimes just talking to someone. You might change somebody's day out a checker that just looks mad but is really sad just by saying, are you okay? Somebody cares? Somebody sees I hurt? Somebody sees I'm lonely? By sitting someone. Say, can I sit with you? 
That's what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. Hey, little guy up in the tree that everybody hates, you get down, I'm going to go to your house today. He saw him over the crowds that, that were the powerful, the crowds that hated that tax collector up there. That little guy who not only was a tax collector, but had been made fun of his whole life because he was short. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. The guy gets out of the tree, the story tells us, and just repents. Just repents because Jesus saw him and chose him. He changed the leper by touching him. He changed a woman accused of adultery by accusing those that accused her, by exposing them, their hypocrisy, their judgment. He exposed them and said, let whoever's without sin throw the first stone. And he just proceeds to draw in the dirt. And they all leave. He looks up and he says, where are your accusers now, lady? And she says, they're all gone. He said, I don't accuse you either. But hey, sweetheart, stop that. This is not what you were made for. Stop it. He changed a paralytic. He changed a blind man who had never seen. And he told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Without the Spirit of God, without the transforming power of God, of being reborn of water and the Spirit, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it's by one Spirit that we're all baptized into one body. We're all one here. We all have a personal relationship with God. And we are a hospital that all of us can bring people to so that we can get what we need from the crowd that we can't get one-on-one. And that's to see this is not just a story. This is not just a claim. This is reality. You can become become a loving person. You can be accepted. You can make a difference in people's lives. You can be a fountain of God on your worst day. You're not saved because you're good. You're saved so that you can show how good God is. No power outside of us can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 tells us that. But our fleshly nature within us can draw us back from God. The heart behind one-on-one ministry is God. It's being willing to be the one to say, you know, Hayden, I'm going to go to your house today. You know, say, Braden, I'd like to get to know you better. It's seeing people. They're all around you. People, there are people here that need you to see them today. They may stand over in the corner and they may act like they're distracted. They may be on their phone doing something. But so many of them just need to be seen. Recognize you're human. But too many times we're doing the Martha deal rather than sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did and let Jesus change us to be like Him. God, I want to pray for us that we see your heart, the heart behind one-on-one ministry, and allow you to change us and to conform us.
to the glory that we see and find in you. Amen. God bless you.